0: This is episode 129 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Mary Burns. She received her master's in speech-language pathology at Northern Arizona University, and despite a history of interest in pediatric language research, publishing and presenting her work, Mary's true passion lies in her clinical work with the adult population. After working in a variety of medical settings, but found her niche in providing outpatient therapy and dysphagia diagnostics. This led to her launching Oregon's first locally owned mobile fees provider, Overland Speech and Swallowing Rehabilitation. Mary also serves on the board of a local nonprofit, Stroke Awareness Oregon, and recently began work as continuing education trainer in the field of dysphagia. Now I just wanted to share with you guys a little bit. I know right now we're in starting to get into the real thick of this coronavirus, and part of me felt really tone-deaf and insensitive, releasing just a normal podcast like it's any old Tuesday when really we're in completely uncharted territories and uncharted waters here. But I've been getting some feedback from you guys that you'd love to just continue on with consistent episodes and continue to hear from other people in our field and it would be a welcome distraction from the coronavirus. So um, that is why I still chose to release this episode today since I think it's a very good episode. Um, I am also looking to do some episodes here in the future about the coronavirus and our role with that. So please stay tuned for that. But um, just wanted to let you guys know kind of where my head is at and not trying to be insensitive and releasing material that has nothing to do with what's going on in the world, but um, trying to just get back to some normalcy, some consistency, um, and welcome this distraction. So I hope Mary serves as a a welcome distraction to what you're all facing today. Please stay safe um, and let us know what we can do to support you. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello Mary. Hi. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation. I know I know it's something that it's, it's going to really shake up some people's brains and thoughts <laughs> about dysphagia therapy, so I'm pumped. So, first things first, tell the people a little bit about yourself.
1: All right. Um uh, well, my name's Mary Burns. I'm a medical speech pathologist and I live out in Oregon. I've been practicing for a little over six years now. And in that time, I've been in acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, skilled nursing. And eventually I found my way to starting my own mobile fees business. So now I run Oregon's only at the time local mobile fees business and I also I sit on a board for a local nonprofit called Stroke Awareness Oregon and I help guide their rehabilitation efforts and education in the community. Awesome. I love it. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about how to build a successful exercise program for our patients with dysphagia and even though I'm going to talk a lot about dysphagia, just because that's what I do. A lot of the things that we'll cover will translate to other areas, aphasia therapy, cognitive therapy, things like that as well. Beautiful. Okay.
0: So it's not just doing three sets of 10 tongue wags. Correct. Okay. Hopefully
1: not. All right. Or at least after you hear this. (laughs) All right. So The first thing I always talk about in building an exercise program, it really starts with the assessment. And I know at least when I started out, I was so overwhelmed by the amount of things I had to cover and the amount of information I needed to get during an assessment. Thinking about home exercises or even just where my exercises were going to be with that patient two weeks from now was the furthest thing from my mind. But really, when we walk into an assessment, we're not just looking at or determining what the deficits are and what exercises we need to implement, but we're already starting to piece together things like, what's our clinical goal? Are we looking at strengthening a muscle group? Is this a patient who we're just trying to maintain abilities? Are we... Focusing on improving safety, increasing endurance, and all of those things. And it may be more than one. So all of those things are going to help guide us in how we put their exercise program together. And the other piece I look at here, only because I've done it the wrong way and had to figure it out, really thinking about that patient as a total picture in terms of what's their motivation like. What are their home supports like or their family network? Even things like their home environment. When you go out into rural communities and I'm recommending, yeah, I want you to eat three times a day as part of your homework, we need to be thinking about is it feasible for this person to purchase the kinds of foods that we want them to eat? Can they physically open the foods and get them to their mouth? All of these pieces are going to help us figure out how we're putting together a home exercise or, or an exercise program for them I, I love that you said that because I
0: just I just finished recording another podcast obviously everybody'll end up hearing and he asked me a question you know about I forget what question he asked me specifically, but my response was really like, well I don't know that I have a direct response for that because I always want to make sure that it's something the patients have access to if it's in line with their goals of care, if it maximizes their quality of life. So I think there's so many things, obviously, you know, like you said, it it might, it's easy for us to just slap a program on somebody, but, you know, adherence is so important if it's, if the, that they're going to follow through with it based on what they have access to, what they're willing to do. So I love that you said that.
1: Thank you. And I, I mean, I tell you, this is somebody who I've been in physical therapy probably Four or five times throughout my life so far, and I have failed, yeah because I don't do the home exercise program, so when you meet your patient and you're probing into what's their level of motivation, what are they hoping to get out of this, what are their goals? you also need to lay the groundwork and tell them directly the, the progress that you want to make is not going to happen in the 30 minutes, three times a week, or the one hour a week, or, you know, whatever frequency you may have in your setting, you have to be doing the work outside of the therapy setting. Otherwise, none of the gains that you want to make are going to happen.
0: Yep, Awesome.
1: So I think what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about how you build a good exercise. It's not just in in swallowing it, but more in a general picture. Okay. So what we look at here, and this seems like when you first introduced it to people, I get a lot of feedback of, well, I'm not a physical therapist. I don't need to know that. And when you look through the show notes, you'll notice though a lot of the research I included does come from our PT and OT colleagues, but that's just because we don't have the body of research yet. And I do know people are working on it and it will come. But when you're, we think about the, you may have heard the term fit principles, the frequency, intensity, time, and type. Yes. So whenever we're building an exercise program for our patient, we want to feed all of our exercises through these filters and think about, so for example, let's start with our frequency. And this is where we decide the frequency with which the patient needs to complete that exercise? How frequently do they need to do it? And this is really, it's not a thing that we can set a recipe to or a specific playbook for each patient. Even those with the exact same diagnosis are going to need you to use your clinical judgment to set that frequency. And this is why the, that standard list of 10 exercises for dysphagia therapy doesn't work for people. I worked at in a facility one time that had just a one handout that we gave to every patient with dysphagia and nobody ever got better and we would all sit around in our office together and think well nobody respects speech therapy and why does no one take dysphagia therapy seriously but our patients weren't getting better and so no one outside the little SLP office was understanding why we were doing the things that we were doing so this is going to look different in terms of this will look different in terms of what setting you're in. A patient in an acute care setting might need a much lower frequency versus our patients who come into an outpatient office, who are mobile and getting back to their just their life in general, in terms of mobility and exercise and things like that. And that's okay. So as our patients recover, we're going to adjust, the frequency that we're asking them to complete an exercise. That intensity principle. So we've covered frequency. Now we're on to intensity and this is our resistance source. So an example in the dysphagia world might be when a patient's doing a Mendelsohn maneuver, gravity is their resistance source or When you're looking at the chin tuck against resistance, you know, whatever. I know people are using a variety of things now, but whatever that is providing that resistance underneath the chin and the force that they're exerting against it is the source of their intensity. And what I want you to think about here is if you keep the intensity the exact same thing and the exact same across the course of treatment, you're going to plateau. If I go to the gym and I do, let's say I'm working on bench press and I bench press 65 pounds and I do that the same amount of reps, the same, the exact same weight. Every time I go in, sure, initially I'll see some progress in terms of strengthening, but then I'm going to level out and I'm just going to be maintaining my strength so it's the same thing for our patients with dysphagia unless you can find a way to progressively increase the intensity they're going to plateau and may just maintain their strength they won't continue to improve their strength so even if a patient's doing the effortful swallow let's say for example across their entire continuum continuum of care they we need to find a way to gradually increase the intensity with which they're doing it across that. Otherwise they won't be continuing to get benefit from the exercise. Thank you for the next so now that we've covered frequency and intensity, our next principle I'll talk about is the specificity principle. And sometimes in exercise science, you'll see this show up. They call it the SED Principle specific adaptation to impose demands. And that's why we all kind of giggle when people are doing the tongue wags or things like that, because this is the principle that shows us that a muscle is going to adapt to the stress that you place on it. So if you want to get better at wagging your tongue, absolutely practice your tongue wags. But if you want to get better at riding a bike, ride a bike. If you want to get better at swallowing, you need to be swallowing. So that's why things, as soon as we can introduce some type of really whole exercise and salient exercise of swallowing to the patient, the better off they're going to be. Whether that be just swallowing ice chips after good oral care, if they're not ready for a more difficult bolus or true food to be introduced, but as soon as we can introduce something for them to be swallowing, that's where we really hit into that specificity principle for exercise and challenge the swallowing system in the way that it's meant to be challenged because no other exercise is going to do that for us. I think the effortful swallow comes the closest to it, but typically we're not doing that with a bolus. And so even introducing a bolus to someone is going to automatically elicit more recruitment of those muscles. When you hold up that spoon or they hold that first ice chip in their mouth, their muscles are primed for swallowing. And that's going to lead to a greater exercise payoff when we can put that bolus, give them that bolus and introduce that. Love that, Mary. Yeah. And then... Uh, You know, some other principles that really play in here, the variety principle talks about when we exercise, we want to exercise a muscle across the entire plane of motion. So my example for that is think about when you're walking on a treadmill versus you're on an elliptical at the gym. And when you're on that elliptical, you have a constant pressure that's being exerted against your leg through that whole 360 degrees of motion. Whereas on a treadmill, I just pick up my foot and bring it back to the front and there's no resistance against my leg. So on an elliptical, I'm getting greater motor unit recruitment and muscle recruitment versus when I'm just activating my muscles in one plane of motion on a treadmill. So that carries across to swallowing in the way that let's say I am taking a sip of water versus chewing and swallowing a bite of a ham sandwich. My muscular system is going to respond in two very different ways to both of those activities. Both of them are valuable, but they're both very different. And so in an exercise program, we want to be really cognizant about challenging the swallowing system in as many planes of motion as we can. Just like in a cognitive exercise program, we're going to practice with have somebody practice a skill or a strategy in a really controlled, safe environment. And then they're going to go out into the real world and practice it in a variety of activities. Across, or we could call it you know, planes of motion, so to speak. They're challenging their system in a variety of different ways And that's what's really allowing that exercise to get its full benefit. The other thing I always like to cover in terms of exercise programs are recovery, the recovery principle, which is one that I know, at least in my own exercise, my husband always laughs at me because we'll go to the gym together and he'll, he'll take, let's say two and a half minutes between a set. And I am a very... Focus on efficiency. I want to do one set and then I wait one minute and 30 seconds and I go into the next set. But with our patients, you know, we're not dealing with a 29 year old healthy individual at the gym. Typically, we're dealing with a 70 year old person in a hospital who's just had a stroke or someone recovering from sepsis or things like that. And they're going to be more heavily reliant on those rest periods than a a healthy individual might and they don't necessarily understand that so we need to include okay I want you to do 15 repetitions of this exercise and then I want you to take one minute of rest or I want you to take two minutes of rest and I thought I just listened to your Podcast with Dr. Carnaby about that, the Borg scale or the rating of perceived exertion. And I think that could be a really powerful way to help patients monitor their recovery period when they're doing their exercises when you're not there. You could set a cutoff for them and say, okay, when you reach this level, I want you to take a two minute break. Beautiful. And then in terms of reversibility, I mean, that's the old, if you if you don't use it, you lose it principle. So during the acute phase of an illness or the acute recovery phase, that frequency and intensity and all of those components we covered are going to need to be a lot higher. But when they're out of the woods, or a little bit more stable, we want to allow for some kind of a maintenance program. And again, this is going to be really specific based on what your patient's disorder is, what the underlying etiology is. I'm going to be more concerned about a maintenance program for an individual with Parkinson's disease than I am for a patient who is eight months post-stroke. So you want to be considering, they don't need to be exercising at the same level of intensity in a maintenance program, but we do need to be providing that education of this is going to be a lifelong exercise for you. We're going to go through periods where you need to work a lot harder and a lot more frequently and intensely, but then we're going to swing back into those periods where we can back off on the intensity a little bit, but you're never going to be able to stop this exercise if we want to keep your system working the way it should be. And with all of these, I think no matter how well you understand Know, how to prescribe intensity or frequency or things like that, the the very basic thing you need to cover first is you have to make sure your patient knows how to do the exercise the right way before you recommend it as part of an exercise program. I've had patients come in to me and Tell me, oh, I'm doing the effortful swallow or the hard swallow. Okay, show me, show me one. And you see their whole face screw up and their neck muscles tighten. And that's not an effortful swallow. And by that point, this person may have been doing that exercise and causing themselves harm for however long. So we need to make sure it's our responsibility as the clinician or the coach to make sure they know how to do it the right way before we send them out in the world to do the exercise.
0: I love it, Mary. Let me, let me stop you right there and ask you, what do you, what's, what's your take on how to effectively tell someone how to do an exercise? Like, do you think that you need biofeedback? Do you think, you know, I am interested in no right answer. I'm just interested in your take on how to explain that to a patient.
1: So for me, it depends on the exercise. I have still never figured out a good way to explain the Mendelssohn maneuver to someone. (laughs) I have tried many different ways and it just never seems to click in. So I think the, the most powerful way, if you can demonstrate it, demonstrate it. And I'll have, you know, if I'm telling a patient, let's say I want you to do the effortful swallow. I'll have them literally put their hands on me to feel where that muscle tension comes from. So if I see them doing it and they're using a lot of accessory muscles, I'll have them touch my throat and say, okay, you feel this is my normal swallow and now this is my effortful swallow. You notice how the difference there wasn't really big? Now let's look at yours. So obviously demo is not always gonna work. It's gonna be easier with things like a pitch glide or a masako or things like that. Biofeedback is great if you have it, but I'm a big proponent of doing what you can with what you have. I don't have biofeedback and it's on my list, but I just do the best I can. I try and use visuals in terms of like, I'll talk a lot about, uh, swimmers. I'll talk about swimmers and how, have you ever seen somebody start a backstroke race? And how they curl themselves up against the blocks. And all that pressure is through their feet up against the wall. And then they spring backwards. And I'll relate that to taunt lingual palatal contact behind the behind the front teeth. And that's part of the the art part of being a clinician. You have to know your patient and know what they can and can't understand or what language. And by that, I don't mean... English, Spanish, Chinese, you know, I mean, how will they relate to what you're telling them? And you have to try and speak that language to explain it to them. And then you just practice a lot.
0: Yeah, I I love that. I love that explanation so much. I I get frustrated when I hear clinicians say, well, I'm not going to have my patient do that exercise because I can't. No one's given me the right explanation of how to tell them how to do it. And I think, you know, I think what you said is that's part of the art of being a clinician is figuring out how to get them to understand the exercise, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And yeah, I, I love that. So
1: I think if if you can't explain an exercise to your patient in a way that they can understand it and do it correctly, you shouldn't be having them do it. Because you either don't understand why you're recommending that exercise you know, you've, it's, let's say I have, I notice a deficit from an MBS or a fees, and it's just the first thing that pops into my mind is, oh, an effortful swallow, right? But I haven't, if I'm not able to explain how an effortful swallow impacts the specific deficit that we noted on their imaging study, I don't think I have any business telling them to do an effortful swallow. And that's why I failed physical therapy so many times because people have given me exercises that I did not understand why they wanted me to do it. And so I didn't do it when my day got busy and I was looking for things to slash off my to-do list. The thing that I had no buy-in for was the very first thing that got caught up cut off my list. And that was my exercises. And this is that, that whole conversation about, you know, I could step on to a soapbox about compliance versus adherence for you, but that's how, if you want your patient to, I'm going to use the term adhere. If you want your patient to adhere to their exercise program, they need to understand my goal is to eat a Reuben and drink a beer. The reason they're telling me I can't eat a Reuben and drink a beer right now is because X, Y, and Z are the problems. I have a total understanding or at least a pretty good understanding of if I do this, this, and this, I'm going to improve my breathing, swallowing, coordination, have better airway protection, and increase my muscular strength in my throat, and those things are going to let me get to my Reuben and my beer. And if you do that, then your patient is going to want to do their exercise. If you just tell them your tongue's weak, they don't care most of the time. Just like I've never cared about someone talking to me about strength in your transverse abdominis. Right, right. right? I don't care. Right. I should, but I don't. But if someone tells me, you know, it's going to decrease my pain and allow me to get back to participating in triathlons, then I want to do it. That's motivation for me. Yeah.
0: I love that, Mary. All right. What's next?
1: So I think I'd like to cover just some basic tips in terms of how to really maximize participation from your from your patient for their exercise program. And some of them we've already covered, but I'm going to go back because I think they're important. So the first one I would say is you have to find a way to help your patient understand how that exercise relates to a functional outcome. And in terms of functional outcome, I'm talking about the thing that they want, not the thing that we as the clinician wants. You know, we may be measuring lingual palatal pressure with the iop. But this is where that whole world of functional goal writing and functional outcomes comes into play. We want a patient to finish a meal. Now, I'm going to tell my patient, Joe, if you do this, Joe, then you're not going to be sitting at the dinner table for 45 minutes after your wife, Susie, has already gone up. You're not going to have to microwave your dinner twice before you ever even finish it. Or have those scary choking episodes that are so embarrassing for you when you want to go out to your restaurant on Wednesday nights with your grandkids. That's the most important thing, I would say. And you have to establish that when you're building a relationship with your patient so that you can constantly bring it back, bring that up when things get tough or when they get discouraged. You want to be able to talk to them about, oh, you know, remember when it's almost summertime and you want to take your grandkids to go get ice cream. You've done that every year and we need to get you back to it so you can have an ice cream cone with your grandkids. The other thing I I already brushed on this, but really setting a clear expectation from the beginning of we have got a lot of work to do, even if it's just a little work, even if they just need it a tune-up for some mild weakness, set that clear expectation of, I always tell my patients, my job is to make you not need me. Mm -hmm. So early on, I'm going to be here all the time, coaching you, nagging you, whatever you want to call it. But over time, that's going to shift to be your responsibility. And the way that we do this is through our home exercise program and through that your time outside of therapy and if you're not doing that there are a lot of people who will so you need to show me that you're my teammate in this and that I'm not the one doing all the work if I'm going to prepare my sessions and do all these things and show up for you every day I need you to show up for yourself and that's where that kind of that compliance adherence dynamic comes in. Compliance is more of a, I'm the boss, you listen to me, and you either follow my rules and get a gold star, or you don't follow my rules, and that means you failed. Adherence fits into that. We're equal partners in your care and in your recovery, and so I'm going to provide you information, and we're going to have this back and forth dynamic where both of our opinions and our input matters equally. And when you shift your mindset to that, I think your, your patient senses that, and they are more likely to do the things that you recommend.
0: I I love that so much, Mary. I think what's interesting, we have so many similarities in the way that we talk to our patients. And, you know, I I think one thing I just always go back to is, you know, I've had, some people say like, I, I just love, you know, when I'm doing fees and in, in buildings, I've had some of the SLPs that I do them for their patients have said, like, I just, I love the way that you explain that. Like, like the patient doesn't seem to be like intimidated by it. Like they actually seem to like, look forward to when you're coming. And it's like, well, because I'm not doing anything to them. I'm doing something with them. And I think that's a huge mindset shift in, in exactly what you said, we're here to help them and to work together and to meet halfway. And like you said, I'm not going to just hand them a bunch of exercises or, you know, tell them they have to eat these foods. You know, it's, it's, we're going to have a back and forth dynamic Mm -hmm. conversation about what's going to be best for you, how you're going to adhere to it. You know, what works for your lifestyle, what, yeah. So, so thank you for saying that because I think that's so important and I keep going back to what you said about it being the art of being a clinician. It's so important for us to, um, work with our patients and not to them.
1: Absolutely. I I think about, you know, if we went into a doctor and they, they don't tell us, you know, to, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, or, or at least a good doctor (laughs) doesn't, you must do this, or I won't see you anymore. Right. I I've been to doctors like that and I have not gone back (laughs) as my choice. Um, so you have to really put yourself in their shoes and think about every piece of their, you know, they're not just a patient laying in a bed in a nursing home or coming into your office. You have to think about all of the, the pieces of them that make them human and special and wonderful and sometimes frustrating, um, and put those together to help them succeed in Their goals and their exercise. And all of those things, the earlier you do that, that's going to set them up for success. You establish that dynamic, you teach them the right form for an exercise. All of those things are going to put you on and your patient on a trajectory for success. And if we all start doing that, I think the perception about speech pathology and especially dysphagia therapy in general will start to shift. We all get so frustrated when people say, you know, oh, did they pass their swallow test? Or, oh, did you go in and check on Mrs. Jones's diet change? Or can you check on this guy with no teeth? Does he need to be on puree, right? I've had those frustrations too. But it's because those people don't understand the extent of our role and what we are able to accomplish. because. For as a large group, we haven't really demonstrated it yet. Right. Completely, completely understand. Completely agree. Other parts that will be important, enlisting support wherever you can, whether that be nursing assistant on your patient's hallway or sibling, a child, a grandkid, a spouse, getting support built in to that exercise program, because we're all, we're not all going to have that patient that automatically remembers to do their exercises every time without fail. You know, we need to tap into, even if it's a dysphagia patient, we need to tap into those other skills as a clinician that we have and think about, okay, how can I use some memory strategies to help support this patient and help them be successful in their dysphagia therapy? Or if they have aphasia and dysphagia, how can we use their language strategies and communication strategies to make them successful if, let's say, they can't read? Or even if they just can't read for no, you know, they never learned how to do it. I've had patients like that, and it really flexes a different mus- muscle. In your clinician brain in terms of, okay, what am I going to do now? I've got eight million handouts, but all of them are written words. How am I going to get them to do what they need to at home? And that's where a lot of, you know, tapping into technologies, taking videos, audio notes, reminders on cell phones. And a lot of our geriatric patients may not want to use things like that initially but if we can demonstrate to them how it works they might be more open to that or train a family member and make it a take off some of that caregiver burden of okay you need to remind grandpa to do his exercises four times a day help the the grandson set it up on his phone to remind him that so he can shoot off a message to grandpa four times a day and they can be accountability partners.
0: I love what you said about making sure they understand why it's important too. And I recently went through this with my son. I had one of his therapists said told us to purchase this thing and I purchased it, but we didn't use it. And I'll admit that. And, you know, my husband kept saying like, why did we buy this? I'm like, I don't know. I honestly, like she said he would like it, but yeah. So anyways, didn't use it. So we go to this other specialist for my son and she, she says, you know, you guys really should consider purchasing this. And I was like, Oh, I have one. And she's like, Oh, well, how does he do in it? And I'm like, I don't, I, we don't use it. And she was like, Oh my goodness. And she's like, well, the benefits are endless. And she's like, it does this, 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 and this, it'll help with this. And I was like, nobody ever explained that to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I just thought it was like, I, I knew it had more benefits than just being a fun toy, but I honestly did not, know or understand. And so then I had horrible mom guilt. I'm like, I cannot believe we purchased this thing. We've not been using it, but I had no clue what it was even for. And so I was thinking of that too. You know, I I think with our patients, they understand, you know, the exercises will help them swallow, but I think they don't understand, like you said, you know, this is what you need to do to get stronger, to be able to get back to eating that Reuben and drinking that beer. You know, I think the specificity in the explanation is so, so important and shouldn't be
1: lost. I I mean, I may just be speaking for myself, but I think as speech pathologists in general, we have a tendency to add more words every time someone doesn't understand something. And that's not always what is helpful, especially with our patients and our clients. More words may not be the answer. So if you're feeling frustrated about, you know, I've explained this Dang Mendelssohn maneuver 15 times to them. And they can't do it, they don't seem to be getting it, instead of, and I, I say this having done it, instead of thinking about the question as what's wrong with my patient, why can't they do this, reframe that and think about it as I need to change something because I'm, they're looking to me as the expert at a time when they're vulnerable it's not their job to figure this out. It's my job.
0: Right. Right.
1: And it's not always, it's rarely easy to figure that out, but that's how you're really going to get a partner in the rehab process. You know, like you said, doing things with them, not to them. Mm -hmm. They come in and you do a workout. You come into their room and do a workout together, not sit there and watch them eat a fruit cup and count cough.
0: Yeah. I, I think of it too. Like I, I hired a new personal trainer while I was pregnant. And I, you know, at first I was nervous that, you know, I was like, Oh my God, she's going to try to kick my butter. She's going to make me work too hard. And I don't know if this was smart to do. And, you know, I had all these fears because I thought she was just going to be like a drill sergeant and just yell at me. But it was like every day we went in and she's like, how are you feeling today? What's bothering you today? You know, what body part hurts? What do we need to work on? And I just, I respected that so much that every day I went in with a different pregnancy ailment and she was able to still put me through a good workout that was good for my mental health too. And didn't, you know, stress me out. And I kept coming back for more. You know, and I kept thinking of this, if she, if she were to just say, you know, too bad, too bad. You feel that way, you know, get on the treadmill and sprint, you know, there's no way I would keep going back and there's no way I would be compliant with, you know, the stuff she had me do at home too. So,
1: And that actually leads me into one other thing that I like to encourage people to do with home exercises. Um, and that's when you first start with your building your patient's exercise program, give them and you can feel it out based on the patient but give them a day or two where it's not really it's a little bit challenging but you know that they're going to be successful with it right if i wanted to run a marathon and i run at, go out and i run 12 miles today as the first day of my training i'm i'm not going to move tomorrow right? I'm going to hurt myself and I'm not going to be able to continue to participate. But if I go out and I say, okay, I'm going to do 30 minutes of two minutes jogging, one minute walking, then I'm going to feel really successful when I finish it. And that internal motivation and that intrinsic feedback of, dang, I did a good job is going to make me want to get up tomorrow and challenge myself a little bit harder and push myself a little bit more. And that's what we need to model with our patients in their exercises as well. I love it, Mary. All right. What's next? I think that pretty much covers everything for me. All right. You know, I, I, my biggest piece of advice is there's a lot, I, I mean, we will never, we're never going to know it all, uh, in terms of. This is 100%, without a doubt, the correct exercise, amount, frequency, intensity. We're not going to know that all. But if we just do the best we can to put that information together with, here's what we know about our patient and get their feedback on it. How did that work for you? Were you able to fit it into your schedule? What barriers, like, if you didn't do it, why not? Let's troubleshoot that together. You know, for many of our patients, this is the very first time they've ever had to do anything like this. So understanding the science, understanding that art portion of fitting it into their life as a human being, not just as a patient, and putting all that together with constant feedback along the way. That's how we're going to get our patients better. Yep. Yep. I love it, Mary. I love it. Thank you so, so much. This was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you Thank you so much to all of you for listening.